if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Foundations here, not the foundations of a building necessarily. The idea is if you have a structured order of society and there are principles in that society that uphold the ability of the citizens to be able to live a peaceful, prosperous life where you have civil order and civil authority. If the foundations of that society are begun to be destroyed, what can righteous people do? I believe that in our day and time, all of us, we are witnessing foundations being destroyed in our society all the time. But in any society, biblically ordered, there are three institutions or pillars of society. That would be creation, we might add that marriage and family, instituted by God. We see God's people in our day and time, the New Testament church is the foundational thing of an ordered society. And then properly ordered ethical civil government is the foundation of any society. And I believe that you would agree with me that in many ways we are seeing in our day and time the same situation or the same question being asked of our own selves. What can we do? Just like David said here in Psalm 11, what can righteous or good people, God's people do when the foundations are being destroyed all around us? Could anybody disagree that in the United States and in the world in general that the foundation of marriage and the family are being destroyed and attacked. We see in our society and many other societies around us, many other cultures, when God says that the only reason to dissolve a marriage is because of adultery, our civil governments have decided that there's no need for any cause at all. No fault divorce. That is striking at the heart of marriage and the family. When we look about at societies today, we see also that primarily the prevailing thought about life and death is in one aspect that abortion is perfectly legal. It's an ethical optional choice for people. How can a society exist or go on if you abort, kill all the children? It can't happen. The foundation of the family is destroyed. How can you have the foundation of stable society when people say that marriage again is not sacrosanct in itself and that it's not the union of a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, but men can marry men, women can marry women, but that is okay. It's an ethical situation. All those things deny not only God's word, they deny reality and common sense. If you kill all your children, your society's not going to prevail. You take men, put a bunch of men 
on a desert island somewhere, how long is their culture going to last? Put women on an island by themselves. Will there be, ever be any children? Of course not. That is an absolute absurdity to have. Say that men can marry men. Destroying, in our day, the foundation of family and marriage. Destroying, in our day, the idea of a biblical, the concept of a biblical church, a people of God. When you deny the authority of the scriptures, when wholesale large groups of religion say that the Bible doesn't matter, that the office of elder in the church is open to anyone, you're just denying the plain teachings of the Bible. And ultimately you're going to deny God himself in some way. When you say that perhaps as Methodists have, United Methodist Church, say as the convention says that you can ordain women, even to the point logically you're going to end up eventually as the Methodists have done, you're going to end up ordaining women, lesbian couples as pastors in church. What could be more absurd? What could go straighter to the heart of the authority of God's word to do that in a church? That foundation is being destroyed in our day. But then the last one, the institution ordained by God, civil government, when that civil government begins to be destroyed, what's the first thing that goes? We know that in our society, in a supposed democratic republic, we are ruled not by a monarch, are we? We're not ruled by a group of men. We are ruled by law. That's the difference, being ruled by law, being ruled by men. And we see a group of people in control that are honestly, excuse me, not honestly, but openly practicing whatever your political strike may be, you see a government that absolutely is being a respecter of persons. All men are created equal with rights endowed to them by their creator. We say, there's not equal justice under the law. We're going to treat one group the way we want to and treat another group and persecute another. Not equal application of the law. We are destroying our civil government. So here we are, we think, hopefully, we all agree, we are to a degree called by God a righteous people, and we see the foundation being destroyed all around us. We ought to ask the question, our hearts ought to be moved to ask the question the same way that David did when he saw his society being destroyed. We ought to ask, what can the righteous do? Or what should we do? David had the answer in the very first opening line of that psalm. In light of these things happening around us, in light of the possibility of diving off into a situation of chaos, and then going into panic, what should we do? David said, and we should say, in the Lord I put my trust. 
I'm not going to trust in these things that seem to be polluted, being corrupted by man. I can trust God, but I cannot trust these things when man starts to corrupt those things and dilute them. So what can I do? Well, if I can't trust them, well, I'll put all my trust in myself. My abilities, my ethics, my ability to figure things out, my natural inclinations to do what I think is right. I'll trust myself. What happens when fallen men trust themselves to make the right decisions? They put those decisions through two filters. The filter of their intellect, the mind, then they put the question through the filter of their ethics or their affections, their hearts. But when we do that, when you say, I'm going to figure it out myself, I can't trust this institution, so I'll figure it out. I'll trust me, my ability to make my own way, make my own decisions. Intellectually, I'll figure it out. But the Bible says that the mind of man is corrupt. The mind of man, the carnal mind, is that enmity is the enemy of God. Then it says, the other filter, our affections, our hearts. It says that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So, what kind of decisions are fallen man going to make? Men going to make? What kind of decisions are even regenerate men that are not very far along the road of sanctifications? What kind of thoughts, what kind of decisions are they going to make for themselves? They're going to make the wrong ones most of the time. So I can't trust myself. I have to trust God. What does it mean to trust? Trust means, as you'll see someday, if you hadn't already in one of the classes, you learn some techniques of personal evangelism, you'll find out in an illustration, trust means to not just intellectually conceive of something or feel good about it, it means that I transfer my trust from one thing to another. That's real belief. Right now I'm leaning on this. I'm leaning depending on myself totally right now. But then I say I can't trust in myself. I'm going to hold on to this object that's bigger and better and stronger than I am. I've transferred all of my trust for myself. I've transferred it to this pulpit right here. I'm going to transfer when the foundations are being destroyed. I'm going to transfer my trust. I'm not going to trust myself. I'm not going to trust the foundations. I'm going to trust. I'm going to transfer it to God. Put it all in Him. The word for God there is Jehovah. Basically, the very basic root of it, that means creator. And then not only the creator, but the sustainer and giver of life. I'm going to trust Him that reading from the Baptist Catechism a while ago. You know what I was talking about? It says the reason why I can trust God. The decrees of God are His eternal purpose. I can trust God because what? He is eternal. He is unchangeable. He is infinite beyond my ability to do anything at all. 
my am finite. He has infinite resources, infinite wisdom, infinite talent and ability to do anything that he wants to do. That's why I can trust him. But the good news is that also in our day and time, it's not just that I trust God because he is the creator and called because he is the sustainer. Fortunately for me, the Bible tells me that in the background of what we see in the Old Testament, we see the full picture in the New Testament that that creator, there's a second person of the Trinity, that creator is the Word of God. He is eternal. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus Christ. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And there was nothing created without Him. All things created by this second person of the Trinity. That I am united to by faith. Now, if you're like me, you probably have a very, very difficult time conceiving of the Trinity. That's something beyond our total ability to grasp and understand to our own satisfaction. But through the years have been different statements drawn up that are reflective of all the truths of the Bible about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it goes something like this. The Trinity is all those three people, those three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, equal, same in essence, but equal in power and glory. Now, that's beyond complete human comprehension. But I thought about reading one day about a diamond. You know that one of those perfect things that mankind ever sees is a perfectly cut diamond. Did you know that a cushion shaped diamond has I believe 58 or 56 facets to it. And you can look at this way for a moment at it. You can see one or two facets at one time. Turn it another way you see two or three more facets. But you can never grasp the top, the bottom, and the sides of that diamond all one time. And appreciate all the facets simultaneously. But they're all there simultaneously. We need to realize that for believers, that when it says, I can trust in Jehovah, I can also trust in the Christ of the covenants that has redeemed me and united me to himself. The rest of the psalm, after it tells us that in these situations, these perilous times, in situations that we can properly put our trust in Jesus Christ, it mentions some things about how do I do that or why can I trust him? That's the rest of the psalm. You'll see there, look at, with me at verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. Why can I put all my trust, not in failing foundations, but in Christ? It says, because God is in His holy temple. And then it goes on to say, the Lord's throne is in heaven. What it's trying to tell us there is principally that God is on the throne. God is ruling eternally. That's the idea behind being on the throne 
that he is in control. He's ruling. We don't live in a world that seems to us that it's all chaos. I can't see all the facets of what's going on in the world around us. But God is sitting on the throne. He is ruling all the facets of life and history all around us at all times for all of eternity. Again, that's what that question is answering. What are the decrees of God? How can God do that? How can He rule it all at one time for all of eternity? Again, because He's infinite and He is eternal. And He never changes. In eternity past, God decrees what is going to happen. Why does He know what's going to happen? How can He bring it all to pass? Because He has decreed it to happen in the past. Look at that question again or that answer. The decrees of God are His eternal purpose. God is, again, infinite, not like me, finite. His purpose, the things He intends to accomplish, are eternal. His thoughts are eternal. According to the counsel of His own will, He did not consult you in eternity past. But what was going to be best, what He wanted to bring about for His own glory in His way. Maybe we have other ideas about how things ought to happen, the way we want things to happen, the things we think would be, bring glory to God the most. You know what? God says, I don't need your counsel. I don't need your finite wisdom. I don't need your finite strength. I don't need your changing opinions to decree what's going to happen in my creation. Why did he do it? For his glory. Not for yours and not for mine, but for his glory. When did he do it? How did he do it? He foreordained, he predestined it to come to pass. Nothing, as Paul says, comes about by chance. All things are working together for your good and his glory. But again, good news for us. The second person of the Trinity what happened at the resurrection? Ephesians 1 says, as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, he said, I seek not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Here is his prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the first person of the Trinity mentioned, and also the second person of the Trinity mentioned, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of all three right there in revelation and the knowledge of him the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling what is the riches of his glory and of his inheritance to the saints what is your inheritance verse 19 and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to which the working of his mighty power but then it changes a little bit from the second person first person to the second person that sits on the throne which he wrought all these things in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places now this Christ the second person of the Trinity that I am united to by faith 
that I'm made part of his body and he's the head. He is the root and I'm one of the branches. I'm part of his body, one of the members of his body, united that strongly. Now, my king, my head, my root, the, branch, the stem, the trunk that I'm united to, now he sits in glory, ruling from on high for all of eternity in the heavenly places. Far above principalities, things of this world, powers of this world that would destroy the foundations. Far above all those principalities and power and might and dominion, man. And every name that is named, not only in this world, in this present day, but also in the world to come. Christ ruling and reigning, creating and holding all things together, decreeing what shall happen. In this age, in the age past, in the age today, and in the ages to come. He is in control. He is the one that I worship, that I'm attached to. And he has put everything, in verse 22, under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Why can I trust God? Because he rules and reigns from above. The second person of the Trinity, Christ, is seated on, seated on the throne. I can't conceive how that happens. God is there. God is ruling. Christ is ruling all at once. I don't understand. But I know that's what it says. And I know that my Redeemer liveth, and at the last day he shall stand and I'll see him. That's why I can have confidence and trust Him when all these foundations are being destroyed. We can trust God because He rules eternally through Christ. But then, sometimes we think about this ruling of Christ. Sometimes we think about the eternality of God and the deity. We think about that sometimes. And then, without a biblical focus, we look through the lens a little bit through the ways of the world from our aspect here on earth where we can't see all of the facets and we began to think that somehow along the way that my abilities caught up in all this tragically I heard a man say not long ago I'll dis disguise the identity and time a little bit man say that God is in control. God's will trumps everything but man. And man's will. And I said, I thought about that. Wait a minute. I've got to digest that a second. God is in control. The one that's infinite, eternal, and unchanging. But me, it's finite, changeable, non-eternal, I can trump his will. That is totally absurd on its face. God not only is on the throne, but you look at him properly in his reign, he's actively reigning. Look at that sheet again about God's providence. God's works of providence are his most holy in other words, it's good, it's righteous. Wise, perfectly informed. 
and is powerful. He can do what he wants. God's works of providence are his holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing, not just keeping it going, but also actively governing all his creatures and all of their actions. We don't like that, do we? I'm my own man. I do what I want to do. I'm the captain of my own ship. That's what we wanted. What does God's word say? It says he is in control. That's why I can trust him and not myself. As this triune God the second person of the Trinity is governing all things, bringing all things to pass. I can trust him. What are the results of his power? The results of his active working? You have to have a proper perspective of him. Many people confuse, again, these concepts of God. Primarily, I think, is one big misconception about God. Almost no one will try to convince you there is no God, there's no deity anywhere, any kind. Nobody really do that. That's intellectually honest. They have a confusion about two terms that come about a lot. They may not know these terms. They have these ideas, concepts in their head. The difference between a deist and a theist. There's all kinds of long extrapolated arguments or definitions. But here's basically what it means. A theist believes these things I just stated. That God is the creator. He is the sustainer. And he brings about everything according to his will. That he's in control of everything. That sounds good. But then the deist takes it a little bit. Changes it a little bit. Well, God is creating. God did create. God is ultimately in control, but in the meantime, he's sort of like me. That he's making adjustments all the time. He's not absolutely governing by providence. He's up there. He's just extra smart. He's extra uh, powerful. And he's watching me and watching the world that's going astray from his plan. And he intervenes here and gets back on course. In the last day, at the end of time, judgment day, he's going to ultimately get it all back to course. But in the meantime, it's just kind of running on its own. It's the idea of the great clockmaker out there someplace that made the perfect clock and he wound it up and just left it to run on its own. That's the way a lot of people, Christians, operate. They may not say it, but in their heart they think that. That's the way they live. But I can't trust this ultimate God. Leave him in control of everything. I've got to trust in myself. I've got to figure it out. It's a little bit on my own. You may not have never called yourself a deist. But you're likely, many are likely practicing as deists. And that's not a God you can trust in. The God you trust in is the one that's in control that's bringing all things to pass. Well, what is this God doing as he sees and watches? 
He's seeing, he's watching, he's controlling, he's active. Well, here's the end product in verse 4. That his eyes beholding, his eyes trying everything. He tries the righteous and he condemns the wicked. Look at the last couple of verses. Brings it down concisely. Verse 6, upon the wicked he shall rain snares and brimstone and horrible tempest. That's the portion of their cup. The horrible tempest. I saw a clip of a hurricane or typhoon last night on the Weather Channel, I guess. And it was just blowing so hard, raining so hard in the dark and debris flying through the air, through the rain. Blew a man, just he was standing there and blew him up against the building. He couldn't move. A horrible tempest. But for those that God is watching right now that do not conform to his will to trust in him, trust in his son Christ, the horrible tempest that's coming is not rain and debris from a hurricane. It says here that horrible tempest is fire and brimstone. He is not going to be fooled. Judgment is coming to those that do not trust this eternal Christ. But for the righteous, those that have had Christ, this eternal God, second person of the Trinity, that lived the perfect life, and not only lived the perfect life, didn't owe a debt, he had positive good, he did the good things for the right reasons, he has positive righteousness. His positive righteousness is imputed to me, my guilt imputed to him, so that I am proclaimed righteous. You really put your trust in him all the way, completely, in his sacrifice, God says, you are righteous. When you saw the foundations being destroyed and you threw all your hope and trust and weight on Christ, he counted you as righteous because he put Christ's righteousness in your account. What's going to happen to them? Those that trust in God. What's going to happen? His countenance as he's trying and actively governing. His countenance, his face, his eyesight, his attention is focused on the righteous. His goodness focused. His eternal blessings focused on his people. Can you imagine just for a moment in days gone by your mother or your dad your best friend, your grandmother, whoever it was and you knew when they looked at you you could see the look on their face that they loved you no matter what. This eternal Christ says his face is looking at you, shining on you right now for all of eternity. That's why when the foundations fail, we can trust in Christ.